The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. My first question uh, for you all is, have you ever been induced? What I mean uh, by that is, have you ever been compelled? Have you ever heard or seen something that caused an involuntary physical response in you uh, when you couldn't help but react? I'm not talking about a natural pain response built into the nervous system or anything to do with pregnancy. I mean a thought that induces or causes an immediate involuntary reaction. I remember an instance where I was listening to a podcast by Al Mohler describing some politician's statement about something, and I suddenly and unconsciously stood up in anger at the wicked hypocrisy of it, only to then laugh as I heard Al Mohler describe how he too was compelled to stand in outrage upon hearing the same thing. One other example comes to mind when I think about being compelled in such a foundational way. I'm not normally bothered by the sight of blood, but when uh, my eldest son, Ben, was around a year old, he had to get blood drawn for a few tests a couple of times, and on one occasion I was at the lab appointment and heard the nurse mention that they'd be drawing three-something-something, I don't know, medical jargon. Um, I assumed it was milliliters, uh, you know, a thousandth of a liter, um, just little measuring lines on the syringe. They drew three milliliters and they kept going, and I realized it was three syringes, And uh, the thought of my little baby losing that much uh, blood made me so dizzy that I stumbled into a chair and nearly blacked out for a moment. Ben, meanwhile, (laughs) didn't even cry. (laughs) I want you to keep in mind uh, the thought of how understanding something can cause or induce or compel a response as we look at God's Word together today. I'm going to be preaching through Romans 1. Verses 15 through 17, turn turn there with me if you're able. Verse 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What we see in this passage, in the rest of Romans, and indeed throughout Scripture, is that the power of the gospel compels us to a gospel eagerness. It gives us confidence. In other words, our experience and our understanding of the gospel urges us to be gospel eager in thought, word, and deed. Before we dig deeper into our passage, I want to establish some context about Paul, what he's saying, how we should think about confidence in the gospel in light of him. When Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome, when he says he's not ashamed of the gospel, don't think of this as evidence of Paul's immunity to such feelings. This isn't about Paul being invulnerable to emotions of anxiety or shame, but about God's continued grace in the life of Paul. Let me share some evidence with you that Paul, too, is human. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came to the church in weakness and in much fear and trembling. In 2 Corinthians 10, we learn that Paul's detractors stated that he wrote letters to churches that were weighty and strong, 
but that his bodily or personal presence was weak and his speech was of no account. Paul even echoes this, possibly joking about it, when he calls himself the Paul who is humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. Paul wasn't charismatic like Apollos, but he was faithful. And he leaned on God to instill in him whatever God required of him. His lack of anxiety or shame, then, isn't some innate character trait that he was born with or something only available to apostles or evangelists. It's a direct byproduct of Paul's individual and corporate experience of the gospel. In Ephesians 6 and elsewhere, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray that he would be given the words and boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel as he ought to. Why would he ask for prayer unless he sometimes struggled with this very thing? In the weeks uh, leading up to leading up to delivering this message, I asked many people to pray that I would rely on God, not myself, for words that I would be granted enough control over my emotions that I can actually speak. I asked for such prayers because I need that. I don't have that on my own. Most of you have seen that in one setting or another. Suffice it to say that Paul is asking them to pray that he be given boldness from God because he needs boldness from God. He's not supernaturally bold, nor supernaturally charismatic, at least not until God made him so. It's clear from all of Paul's writing that the source of his confidence was in Christ and in the gospel. He asked God for boldness, confidence, eagerness, and God provided time and time again. I say all this to remind you and to remind myself that confidence in the gospel is not a trait you're born with. It's not a, it's not a personality you have or don't have. It's not even a spiritual gift that some have and others don't. Confidence in the gospel is the natural result of a Christian properly and consistently thinking about the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In order to better understand these verses and understand how to apply their truth to our lives, I want us to address four main questions. Why do we lack eagerness to speak the gospel? How is the gospel the power of God for salvation? What is the righteousness, or sorry, how is the righteousness of God revealed? And what does gospel eagerness look like? So Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. We have to ask why we are sometimes ashamed, anxious, or apathetic. Why do we lack eagerness to speak the gospel? And what does scripture say about our reasons? One reason is that we know that the gospel is not impressive or attractive to most people. I don't know about you, but when I hear a clever joke or see someone MacGyver an ingenious solution to a mechanical problem, or when I see some sort of interesting lesson plan or teaching tool, I'm excited to talk to other people about it. Uh, I, that happened last night when Graham told me a bear joke. Um, I see an example of human cleverness or wisdom, and I want to share it with anyone that I think might appreciate it. But the power of God for salvation isn't found in human wisdom or cleverness. Quite the opposite, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 
through 31. Uh, if you're able, turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 31. And let's confront this reality with Scripture. Let's see why these reasons for fear or apathy should instead be turned to confidence. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So rather than soaring rhetoric or elegant human reason, it pleased God to save sinners through what seems to the world like foolishness. God doesn't use clever philosophical arguments or pithy wordplay to save people. None of this is to take away from Christian apologetics or to nullify the importance of, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I'm not saying that reasoning or argumentation have no value, not at all. I'm reminding us that the gospel, not human wisdom, is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the redemptive work of Christ and the communication of that reality is what God chooses to use to save sinners. To save sinners. In fact, he chooses to use those that are weak or foolish in order to better show his glory. This is an amazing reason for confidence in the gospel. Not only is the gospel unimpressive to most people from the standpoint of human reason, the gospel is frankly unattractive to most unbelievers. It confronts them with their sin, tells them that they're spiritually dead, that anything they might think of as righteousness they do is a disgusting, filthy rag to God. The gospel tells them that they have no hope apart from Christ. And that repentance and faith in him is the only way they can escape eternal judgment in hell. Let's see what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16a. If you want, you can turn there. Understand that this is in the context of Paul's ministry to churches and to those outside the church alike. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
I've long appreciated the core meaning of these verses, but the beginning of verse 15 really struck me as I was preparing for this message. It says that whether we are among those who are being saved or among those who are perishing, we are the aroma of Christ to God among them. It's the same aroma, the same smell. In other words, we smell like Jesus. Now, this isn't a fragrance you can buy in a shampoo or a perfume, but a word picture for the way that we exude or radiate Jesus when we're in a posture or an attitude of ministry. Verse 16 has uh, long been a source of comfort to me, that uh, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. But I didn't realize before how much these are the exact same smell to God. Paul tells us that we're going to be a breath of fresh air, the scent of life to life to those that are being saved. In other words, those that God is regenerating, those in whom he is already at work to convict and draw to repentance, those people will experience the gospel we convey, like that first breath after you've been underwater too long. When we communicate people's sin, their need for repentance and redemption, and that their only hope is in the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus, those that are being saved will breathe it in like life itself. That same gospel message will be a stench in the nostrils of those who are perishing, like the smell of a corpse. And you know what? Especially in the context of evangelism, we don't know beforehand who we're talking to, whether they are being saved or perishing. And as verse 15 says to God, no matter how the recipients respond, it's the same smell. The smell of his son, who is perfectly obedient, even to death. If people repent and believe, God is pleased with the aroma of Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Obedient. If people revile us, if they treat us like we're trying to communicate a disease to them rather than communicate their only hope in life and death, then God is pleased with the aroma of Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Obedient. We owe God the faithful transmission of the gospel, not results. So as Romans, Romans 9 says, it depends not on human will or exertion, ours or theirs, but on God who has mercy. This isn't to say that the words we use in communicating the gospel to people don't matter. In 1 Peter 3, the author calls us to explain our hope with gentleness and respect, and that we should be, and we should be careful to rightly handle the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy. But the response of gospel hearers isn't dependent upon our specific words. It depends on whether they're being saved or perishing. And ultimately, that depends on the mercy of God. This is an incredible reason for confidence, not anxiety. So we've covered feeling ashamed or anxious, but perhaps you, like me, struggle with apathy, anger, or animosity. Looking at our world as it spirals further and further into corruption and sin, as described in the rest of Romans chapter 1 and elsewhere, Perhaps you often lack a heart of compassion toward the lost. If so, you and I are not alone among the people of God in this failing. The prophet Jonah hated the wicked culture of the Assyrians so much that he ran the other way when God called him to preach judgment and doom over their capital city, Nineveh. Now, we might expect someone who hates the Assyrians to exult in bringing such a message of doom, but Jonah says otherwise, 
In Jonah 4.2, Jonah tells God that he ran away from his mission because he knew that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah hated the Assyrians so much he didn't want them to repent because then they'd receive God's mercy. We also see in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to call down fire from heaven onto a Samaritan village after it rejected Jesus' teaching. We may not be asking for God to wipe out sinners, but it can be easy to write people off as hopeless cases, easy to condemn people who are different from us or are very obviously in their sin, and to refuse to share the gospel with them. But this is exactly what we're not called to do. When Jesus tells us not to judge, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't discern between good and evil. He's calling us not to condemn them, not to pronounce the final judgment that is only God's to proclaim. God calls us to hate sin, but to hate our own sin, most of all. And considering the gospel instills eagerness in us, not apathy. The gospel keeps Christians humble by reminding us that we're far more wicked than we ever fully realize, and gives us confidence as we understand that we're far more loved than we can imagine. Both gospel humility and gospel confidence are essential to the gospel eagerness that should characterize our lives. So our next question is, how is the gospel the power of God for salvation? First of all, we have to address what is the gospel. I've said it a lot already, I'm going to say it a lot more. As Isaac Adams put succinctly, the gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Romans, in particular, is stuffed full of the gospel, looking at it from all angles. And we need to see it from multiple angles, too. We often need to be reminded that the gospel is not just about the story of Jesus or even his work in our regeneration or conversion. It's about the entire redemptive work of Christ. So next we're talking about salvation. Well, saved from what? It's been said, well said, that the redeemed of God were, are, and will be saved by Christ. We were saved from the penalty of sin, are being saved from its power, and will be saved from its presence in eternity. Unbelievers currently are slaves to their sin, twisted and harmed by it. While Christians do still sin, we don't have to. We're not slaves to it. And rather than being twisted by sin more and more, we are, not perfectly, but consistently, being made more Christ-like. Furthermore, the redeemed are saved from an eternity of torturous darkness and pain in the total absence of God. Our world is full of horrific evil, and yet God is still holding back so much wickedness that it's, there's really little comparison to the just judgment of hell. Thinking of hell reminds us of our unpayable debt to God in Christ. It humbles us. It instills gratitude in us. Importantly, for our eagerness to share the gospel, thinking of the current state and ultimate fate of the unredeemed excites, stirs our compassion. So, the gospel saves. That's what God chooses, as we saw earlier, to save sinners. But that's what doesn't save. What do people rely on instead that cannot save them? As Paul the Apostle 
no longer Saul the Pharisee, would be the first to tell us God does not use our heritage or our good works to save us. He does not use church attendance or even the sacraments of baptism and communion to save sinners. As we've reviewed, he does not use human reason to save or human wisdom. God does not even use biblical principles minus the gospel. Judeo-Christian values absent the gospel. As much as the world will be blessed in this life by living by these principles, and there's value in encouraging them, such general principles, again, without the gospel, are powerless to save sinners from the just wrath of God. Only the gospel, only the redemptive life and death of Christ, has been used by God for eternal salvation. No one at any time in history, including all through the Old Testament, has ever been saved any other way. Hebrews 11 helps us with this. After the Hall of Faith, throughout chapter 11, which lists the faith of God's people throughout the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews notes that all these people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, God didn't save them in a different way. He didn't save them apart from us. So only the gospel saves. Next, as I said, we have to consider how God uses the gospel. The redemptive work of Christ and our communication of it is what God uses to transform hearts, to bring the spiritually dead to spiritual life. It is not a matter of right habits or action that eventually lead to right belief. It is a supernatural and fundamental transformation of people's minds and hearts that results in outward change as well. I find great confidence in the power of the gospel for salvation by looking at examples of its miraculous power. The most obvious example given that our scripture today is written by Paul is the transformation of Saul of Tarsus from a man who murdered Christians to Paul the Apostle, who continued to preach the gospel of Christ despite interpersonal conflicts with other Christians, despite times of poverty, despite multiple arrests, attempts on his life, shipwrecks, and a multitude of other hardships. I want to read some other great evidences in Scripture of this transformation in the redeemed. Uh, the first one will be in Titus 3, 3-7. And as I read these, there will be lists at the beginning of each passage that I'll read slowly because I want you to think about how powerful the gospel is to change people like what's described. So Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified in his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Next is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. So verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Praise be to God, because he saves sinners like us. Amen. Amen. He can save anyone that you're inclined to condemn or write off as a hopeless case. So Paul says that this glorious gospel that saves reveals the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Throughout scripture, the righteousness of God refers generally to three things. God's morally perfect character, God's right actions, and to the righteousness that he graciously credits to sinners who repent through faith. While we have access to obtain Christ's righteous record through faith in the gospel, we also understand God by seeing his righteous character through his righteous redemptive work. In other words, all three of these are at play in the gospel. Elsewhere in Romans, we see that God reveals aspects of himself through nature and human consciences. But in verse 17 of chapter 1, we read that God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith to faith. This is describing that the gospel, again, the redemptive life and death of Christ and our communication of it, reveals the righteousness of God through faith from start to finish. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We are saved by grace through faith. Romans 1.17 also notes that the righteous shall live by faith. We do not simply have a moment of faith, a conversion, but a continual return via faith to the grace and mercy of God. We have faith. We trust that he is righteous. We trust that he can and will save us. We trust that he won't leave us as we are, but will sanctify us, conforming us to the likeness of his son, Jesus. We trust that he will preserve us forever with him. Hebrews 11 helps again with examples. Go read it. By faith we understand. By faith Abel. By faith Noah. By faith Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. Faith is belief that causes action. It is faith through which God credits or imputes righteousness by his grace. So speaking of faith that inevitably causes action. Next, I want us to consider what gospel eagerness looks like when lived out. We'll look at three main categories of our lives, our thoughts, words, and deeds, with additional consideration of how we can stir up and practice gospel eagerness together as a body of Christ. And let me emphasize at the outset that I'm preaching to myself as much as to you in this. I need to practice the following as much as any of us. So our thoughts. There are two primary ways for us as believers to become gospel eager in our thoughts. Meditation and prayer. Meditation is essentially focused, intentional thinking. You could say that it's thinking directed at yourself, at your own soul. Perhaps the best thing we can meditate on is the gospel. So, as many have said, preach the gospel to yourself. A great example of this is, uh, of what this looks like, is Psalm 42, where David tells himself not to despair, but to hope in God who saves. I would include scripture memorization in the umbrella of meditation, and 
to remind yourself of the gospel, I recommend Romans 3, 19 through 26, Romans 4, 7 through 8, Romans 8, 1, Galatians 3, 13, James 1, 18, Isaiah 53, 6. As I said earlier, consider the current state and eternal fate of the unsaved. Let the horrors of it stir your gratitude and your compassion for the lost. Furthermore, Paul encourages us in Philippians 4.8 to think about, to meditate on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. The gospel is all those things. And it's worth thinking about more than I do now. More than you do now. If we're not drinking deeply of the gospel, reading about it and thinking about it, how will it overflow from us to our children, to our friends, to our co-workers or strangers? Next, pray about the gospel. Thank God for how he's used it in your life and in the lives of believers around you. I'm sure the book Corey recommended last night, Handbook for Praying Scripture, is an excellent resource for this. Pray for boldness, as the early church did in Acts 4, in the face of direct threats. Pray for opportunities and for the courage to seize them. Pray for wisdom and the right words, knowing that God is sovereign over the results. Pray for others at this church to have gospel opportunities. Pray that God would use the gospel to transform the unsaved at our church. That the grace of the gospel would infuse our families. That visitors would be confronted with and refreshed by the gospel while they're among us. As Colossians 3, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The more that we understand the gospel, the more that we think of it, the more we will be naturally speaking about the gospel to family, friends, and strangers. It doesn't always have to be a full presentation, including every important part of the process of redemption. It doesn't have to happen only when you've memorized every apologetic argument. Prepare, certainly, but don't let your desire to be prepared enable your fear at the expense of actually speaking. Speak of the blessings of the gospel in your life. You don't have to give your testimony in a comprehensive and formal story of your conversion sense in order to share a testimony about how God's saving grace is manifesting in your life. Know that some plant, some water, others harvest. You don't have to plant, grow, and harvest the crop in one sitting. Unfortunately, most of us aren't talking about the gospel enough with believers, much less unbelievers. In the context of the gospel, our passage today noted that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or perhaps from faith to faith. As I mentioned, this most likely refers to God's righteousness being revealed through faith from beginning to end emphasizing that it's faith and not works. But when I read through Romans 1, I couldn't help but draw a connection to verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter. In verse 11, Paul speaks of his longing to see those in Rome to impart some spiritual gifts to strengthen them. 
We don't have to wonder what he means by that because in verse 12 he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul the Apostle wants to experience a mutual strengthening and encouragement by the sharing of other believers' faith. He calls that a spiritual gift. We can experience this through reading scripture. Again, Hebrews 11 is an amazing slice of this. Or through reading about the lives of, saint, of other saints in the past. And there is a special potency, a special power in us hearing from one another about the ongoing work of redemption in our lives. About our gospel experiences. I say experiences plural because mutually encouraging one another from faith to faith, you might say, involves hearing not only our conversions, but also the way that the gospel continues to play a role in our sanctification, our preservation, and our sure hope in future glorification. I love to hear how God has brought believers from spiritual death to life, each instance with its own unique details united by the single truth, the single Savior at the heart of each account. Even more so, the details of God's past and present work in our lives, all our lives, form a mosaic of glory. We saw, we saw some of that last night, and by God's grace we'll see more of it in the evenings to come. Our experience and knowledge of the gospel is what gives us confidence, what compels gospel eagerness in our lives. And we experience and understand the gospel both as individuals and together. I exhort you all to more frequently ask about and share about the past and present effects of the gospel in your life. Finally, let's consider what it looks like to put gospel eagerness into practice through our deeds or actions. All humans are made as image bearers of God, and we all, to differing degrees, imitate God in our actions. We think, we speak, we have emotions, we create, we work. Verse 17 of our passage today stated that the gospel, the redemptive work of God, reveals the righteousness of God. I would argue that the gospel reveals God's character in a unique and full-faceted way. Thus, when we act in redemptive ways, whether that's being gracious, in other words, good to those that don't deserve it, or being merciful, not giving bad to those who do deserve it, whether that's forgiving, upholding justice, selflessly sacrificing, when we do these things, we are imitating God in a most glorious way. That we get to take part in imitating God this way is a supreme privilege, and one we should be excited to exercise, rather than feeling duty-bound to practice. You've seen, no doubt, little children imitate their parents or older siblings, whether it's through their clothes or through their work or play. They love to imitate, to reenact, to be like the one they love and look up to. May the gospel stir a desire in us to forgive, to redeem, to make peace. In each of these ways, scripture shows us that we have the duty and privilege to imitate God. The fact that our forgiveness is a reenactment, when we forgive, it's a reenactment of God's forgiveness, for example. This fact is clear from the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples when he called them and all future believers to forgive others as God has forgiven us. New Testament writers repeatedly describe 
how God and his gospel bring peace, restoration, and unity between us and God and between different people groups. This is often followed by exhortations to be at peace with all, to make peace, to restore those who stumble, or to pursue unity. I want to read two passages from 2 Corinthians to encourage you in this. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20 says, All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, bringing the world back to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry, or sorry, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Next, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of peace will be with you. He is the ultimate reconciler and peacemaker. And yet he's given us ministry of reconciliation, given us the task of peacemaking in our own daily actions and relationships. I exhort and encourage you, eagerly pursue forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, grace, mercy, peacemaking, and self-sacrifice as a lifestyle. This is the core. This is the core of our faith. And it should be the core of our identity. Not only as individuals, but even more so as the body of Christ. As a church, this should characterize the relationships we have here, especially. We should work to be at peace with one another, to forgive or graciously work out friction or sin between us, to extend mercy, to give our resources and time and love to one another. This is a wonderful church. Where so much of this happens. We have an excellent opportunity to exercise this gospel eagerness individually and as a church here and back home this weekend. But you must know, we must know, that we cannot do it ourselves. Rely on God's grace and have confidence as it's Him who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We all need to grow in gospel eagerness to build up our confidence in the gospel. And we've seen how we can do that by challenging the reasons we feel ashamed or apathetic with the truth of scripture, by reminding ourselves of the unique power of the gospel to save, by putting our faith only in his righteousness, by thinking about, praying about, and speaking about the gospel, and by practicing gospel forgiveness, redemption, and peacemaking. I want to close with one last encouragement from, uh, you may have guessed it, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. After describing the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus for our atonement, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray to our great Redeemer, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, your glorious redemptive work, and we thank you that we get to think about it, speak about it, and live in reenactment of it. Help us to do these things as only you can for your glory. Amen.